at some point in our lives, many of us will find ourselves wondering how we can get back to God. Not that God's lost, mind you, but somewhere along the way, we have wandered and strayed and lost our way. And one day we wake up only to realize the reality that, in fact, we've, we've often made much of a mess in our own life. Right? We thought we had everything under control. We had plans and bright hopes and a wonderful future. It's just that life, well, it never really panned out as we thought it would. We live with regrets, or we live with the regret that we've caused others to live with regrets. We thought that we were the master of our fate, the captain of our own soul, and yet all we've successfully done is to make a shipwreck of our own lives. Maybe we've brought such circumstances upon ourselves by our poor choices, or maybe we've simply fallen prey to the cruel vicissitudes of life. Either way, we're, we're near the end of our rope, and so we're left wondering, can God help me? Can he help me? Or right, if so, how do I find my way back to God? Now, maybe you've come this morning and, and you are a seeker, right? You're a, a spiritual pilgrim of sorts. Or, or maybe you've always thought of yourself as a Christian. But somewhere along the way, you realize that you and God took divergent paths, well, either way, I think our text in 1 Samuel this morning is going to help you. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back before you, you should be able to find it on page 230, on page 230. And as you turn there in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 7, if you're just joining us, and just to bring you sort of back up to speed, we opened the book of 1 Samuel only to find Israel in moral and in spiritual ruin, right? In chapter two, we see the temples become a bordello, her priests gallivant about. They prefer skirts and stakes over genuine sacrifice. And there's no law, we see. There's no leader. And with an army amassing on her borders in chapter four, Israel desperately grabs for the ark, right? They treat it like that lucky rabbit's foot. And they march off into battle in chapter four. Right, but God's no talisman as we saw. Their army is routed. The treasured ark is, is catered off as a spoil of war. And yet as we get into chapters 5 and 6, we see how that, that day of Philistine triumph, well, it's become a national tragedy. When, when they wake up early in chapter 5 to find their deity dismembered, the bodies pile up in chapter 6 as the ark bounces about from city to city in a kind of perverse victory lap. The Philistines had thought that, that Israel's God had fallen into their hands when we saw in reality how the Philistines had fallen into God's hands. And so they end up surrendering the ark to Israel. But the glorious homecoming of that ark returning to Israel in chapter 6, it's very short-lived as the ever-obdurate Israel treats the ark like it's some pawn shop knick-knack, right? And a death descends again upon Israel as it had upon the Philistines. And so like the Philistines, Israel, as we get near the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7, they're begging for the ark to be put away from them. And so in 7-2, the ark is moved and we read that 20 long years pass and Samuel, who we were introduced to earlier in the book and we had his wonderful call in chapter 3, he's been absent for the whole time. 
And yet this season of spiritual famine eventually drives Israel to hunger after the Lord again. And they recognize, they recognize they've lost their way. They recognize they've taken a divergent path. They've made a mess of their lives. And we closed in chapter 7, verse 2, two weeks ago with, with Israel longing, really lamenting at her condition, longing after the Lord. So how can they return to him? Well, that's what 1 Samuel has to teach us. How do we return to God? And I think this chapter holds the answer for us. We, we just call it the gospel according to Samuel. I think that's what chapter 7 is, the gospel according to Samuel. So we pick up the story where we left off, chapter 7, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3. Let's read. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth and from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Let's stop right there. Okay, so what's the gospel according to Samuel? This process of, of coming back to God, of one who's wandered and is being restored. Well, the first thing we see in this gospel according to Samuel, the first thing we see is we must repent. We must repent. So verse 3 is punctuated with the return of Samuel. Right? Thus far in the book, back in chapter 3, we heard him say over and over, here I am. Right? Here I am. And yet we've been left wondering, right, the last three chapters, where did he go? He's been gone through chapters 4 and 5 and 6, and now he returns here in chapter 7 to lead God's people. And in a striking contrast to Hophni and Phinehas back in chapters 2 and 3, who, or 2 and 4 really, who sought victory for Israel by leading the ark out against the Philistines, notice how Samuel sought victory for Israel by bringing Israel back to the Lord. That's what's meant by that expression in verse 3, if you are returning, if you are returning to the Lord. That word return is synonymous throughout the Old Testament with repent, with repent. We're learning you cannot first come to God without repenting. There's no other way, right? There are no shortcuts. True reverence begins with genuine Repentance. Now, repentance is a very religious-sounding word that most equate with this feeling of maybe regret or remorse. Repentance, perhaps you think that's like saying you're sorry. And judging by stories over the past month, that's a, a pretty difficult thing to do, whether it was disgraced swimmer Ryan Lochte's public statement, which was supposed to serve as an apology, and yet if you read it, He proceeded to spend the majority of the statement actually not apologizing for anything. Or Gary Johnson's insistence that his infamous what is Aleppo mistake 
well, that was just a big misunderstanding. Or Clinton's basket of deplorables remark. She doesn't regret the remark, only that she applied the term to about a quarter of the American public. And given it's the political season, and I have to be sort of an equal opportunity preacher, can't leave out Trump, right? The king of the non-apology, the man who on CNN publicly stated he has never asked God for forgiveness because he really doesn't do things that are that bad. Right, the point is, it seems many can say something like mistakes were made without truly admitting to anything. That expression, you know, mistakes have been made, that's actually been dubbed the past exonerative tense because of how widespread its usage is in Washington where I came from. But just recognize, as hard as apologies are, repentance is actually a lot more than merely an apology or confessing something like mistakes were made in some passive abstract sense. So, so then what is it? What is repentance? Well, I think we notice three things about it from verses three to six. First, notice how repentance, it begins with the heart. It begins with the heart. Verse three literally reads in the Hebrew, says, if with all your heart, if with all your heart you are returning to the Lord, and the emphasis there is on the heart. Genuine repentance is heartfelt. It rises from within. It's not something imposed upon us by outside forces. It's not a public relations ploy where we seek to appease sponsors or, or maybe protect our own image. It's not something that finally can be done for us. Right? God's not looking for flashy outward displays. What do we read in Joel 2.13? Rend your hearts. Rend your hearts, not your garments, says Joel. Right? True repentance, it's heartfelt. It's personal. It's sorrowful. It's often tearful. But it's not just a heartfelt sorrow over sin. A second thing we see is, is repentance is, is followed by this active turning from sin. It's followed by a turning from sin. If you are returning, we read, then Samuel's saying, demonstrate it, right? Demonstrate it by putting away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you. And here we get a bit of a picture of what's been happening in Israel in this 20 years that have lapsed back in chapter 7, verse 2. Well, they've relegated the ark to the back, sort of top shelf of their closet, far from view, and they've, they've pulled down all the Canaanite gods and the Philistine gods to play with. So Ashtoreth was the female Canaanite goddess of love and fertility and war, and Baal was the, actually the offspring of Dagon, which is just tragic if you think about it. So God has defeated Dagon, and yet here they are worshiping his offspring. And he's the male deity of fertility and storm. And so we begin to see that church for them in those 20 years, it just became a, really a flagrant excuse for this wanton sexual indulgence and perversion. And Hophni and Phinehas had been the ones who'd led them into such practices, and Samuel's going to have to be the one that's going to pull them out. And he's teaching them in these verses, he's teaching us that repentance is to reject that former way of life. It's to turn from it. Friend, you can't turn to God without first turning from sin. The Bible's really clear on this. 
you can't turn to God without first turning from sin. And this is one thing that's so often misunderstood about Christianity. So in every membership interview, if, if you ever seek to come join the church, I'll have an interview with you, which is not like a pass-fail thing, but it's just a good chance to hear your testimony, hear about your life. And one of the things I'll say is, hey, can you share the gospel with me? You know, 60 seconds or less, can you share the gospel with me? And often folks do a great job, and they, they focus on really the necessity of faith, but it's not uncommon that they fail to mention that repentance, that turning from sin part. And maybe they think that's implicit in believing, but the Bible's actually very explicit on this point, and we have to be explicit as well. So I'll often ask them, if they don't mention much of repentance, I'll say something like, well, what if someone says they believe in Jesus, but they're still living with their girlfriend, or they're getting drunk at night, or they're cheating on their taxes? You know, what would you say to that person? You know, what if that person is you this morning? The Bible says you can't turn to God without turning from sin, period. Jesus' first command in the Gospel of Mark is repent. The very first command we, reads from the wor- we read from the words of his mouth is repent, Mark 1.15. Turn from sin because repentance It is tangible. Repentance is tangible. It moves us not merely to tears, though it may do that, but it actually moves us to transformation. It causes us to turn, to leave that old way of life. But I want us to notice a third thing. It's not just a a heartfelt turning from sin. Repentance is that, but it's positively a turning from sin and to God. From sin and to God. Verse three, direct your heart to the Lord. Serve him only. Right, that's what Tanner read to us of 1 Thessalonians 1.9 earlier where Paul commends the Thessalonian Christians for receiving his message and he says they received it by turning to God from idols. That's repentance right there, turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Biblical repentance is to give yourself fully over to the Lord. Like a marriage, you commit yourself exclusively to him, right? Nobody getting married slides into their wedding bed that night and looks at their spouse and says, you know I love you and only you, and then proceeds to invite all of their past lovers into that bed. That's just a vile Thing. It's repulsive to consider one acting in such a way. Yet that's what we do every time we say we're committed to God alone and yet we won't leave our past loves. We can't cozy up to God and sin at the same time. Now, the pagan gods were polygamous, right? You could, you could serve multiplicity of these gods. They weren't offended as you served them and others. They didn't mind Israel sharing them with others. But God is monogamous. He's jealous for an exclusive love, him for his people. He's committed himself uniquely to his bride. He rightfully demands the same. He will not share his glory with another. God's not going to have an open marriage. But I wonder about you. What about you this morning? 
Have you been pursuing an open marriage with God? Have you sought to, to love God and yet sort of still coddle and, and cuddle up to all those past ways? Is there a relationship in your life that you've refused to sever? Is there a sin that you quietly and yet habitually bring into that marriage with God? Do you profess to love him and yet willfully neglect him? Do you profess to love him and yet there you are flirting in the quiet and in the darkness and when no one's watching with those other loves? Oh, friend, if that's you, just recognize you haven't fully grasped what it means to repent. God spares no expense for his bride. All his power, all his wealth is for her. God doesn't deserve just a part of you. He deserves all, all of you. All right, so what is repentance? Well, I hope you see it's not merely an apology. It's not merely a feeling of sorrow and remorse. Listen, lots of people can feel sorrow and remorse over their sins without feeling genuine contrition for the sin itself. It's an easy thing to do. The Bible knows this. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. Distinguishes between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And worldly sorrow, Paul says, ultimately leads to death. Because there might be some tears and some sadness, but it's not born out of a real genuine desire to change. Whereas godly grief, 2 Corinthians 7.10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Right, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin evidenced by how we turn from our sins and we go to God, run empty-handed to God. Repentance doesn't make excuses. Repentance says, you know what, yes, that is me and all the ugliness, that is me and I take God's side against myself. I know my sin and I take God's side against my own sin. That's what repentance does. And this is what Israel does in these verses. In verse 4, what do they do? They put away balls and the, the asterisk, and then they memorialize this commitment as they gather at Mizpah, and they pour out water. They confess their sins. Do you see that there in verses 5 and 6? And that act of pouring out water was probably meant to signify the, the washing away of their guilt. They're cleansing themselves from their past ways. This is sort of analogous, much in the same way, to baptism as a picture in the New Testament of being cleansed from sin, leaving that old way of life, being born again, brought into a new relationship with God. So, friend, are you frustrated, embarrassed, disgusted, maybe even ashamed of yourself? Do you genuinely want to return to God this morning? then confess your sins and turn from those sins because you cannot return to God without first repenting from sin. It is that plain and simple. And friend, if you need help, gather a few other Christians around you because we need to do this together to bring our sin out into the open, out into the light, and use others as you open yourself up to help you in that work. All right, so here at this point, for the first time in the book of Samuel, in over a generation, Israel looks like they may have just genuinely returned to God. And though the gospel of salvation, right, it begins with repentance, 
it promises something. And this is the second thing we see. It promises something, and that is that, secondly, we can be saved. Secondly, we can be saved. We notice that all's not roses. Evidently, in the past 20 years, with the worship of these foreign gods, all that's won them is further slavery. Israel had evidently fallen under the heavy hands of the Philistines again. For verse 3, they note how they need to be delivered. And don't miss this object lesson. God had delivered them. They had run back to the sin. And where do we find them? We find them enslaved again. Sin always enslaves. It always enslaves. It promises freedom, but all it does is shackle and bind us in fetters. Now, that's the opposite of what the world will tell you. It will tell you that true freedom is found in throwing off all those restraints, right? The restraints of God's word and giving in to your desires, that's where freedom is found. But I just wonder, do you genuinely feel free when you give in to temptation? Do you genuinely feel free in that moment? When you indulge in repeated sexual immorality, do you feel free then? When time after time you waste your night before a a game console, or before a cable remote, or before some web browser, only to sort of oversleep for the fifth morning in a row, Do you feel free when you take the reins off your tongue and you use your words without restraint? Do you feel free? Do you feel free when when you're worrying about pregnancy or STDs or the long-term consequences of images seared in your own conscience? Do you feel free then? Do you feel free when your grades suffer or when your job performance tanks because you find yourselves out and playing at night? Do you feel free when you find yourself alone because your tongue has driven away those you love most? True freedom is never found in giving in to sin. It's found in learning to give ourselves over to God. That's where true freedom is always found. It's as we live in obedience to his word. That's when we become truly free. Right, so what's going to happen to a newly repentant Israel? We pick up the story, chapter 7, verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Okay, stop right there. Mizpah is located on a hill. And evidently the Philistines observed the Israelites gathering and that contrition there of returning to the Lord, they interpreted that gathering as actually as combativeness. They assumed Israel's gathering together for war. And so, recognize 7-7, seven, seven, it's deja vu all over again. We're right back where we were in chapter 4, when the last time the Philistines had gathered on her borders. And remember what happened in chapter 4, it didn't go so well for Israel. So this is the decisive moment, right? What's Israel going to do as the Philistines again are gathering? Are they going to reach for the ark again like that lucky rabbit's foot? Are they going to saunter out into battle, right? It all comes to a head. We pick up in verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Oh, friend, what a reversal, right? That's a complete turning of where we were in chapter four. They've lost all of that cocky swagger they used to have. 
They know the power of their enemy, but even more than that, by this point, they know the power of their God, and in fear, they turn to the only one who can save, right? They've repented, and now they're turning to the Lord and saying, Samuel, pray for us, intercede for us. So my Christian friend, if you've come this morning humbled and reduced to the point where Israel is here, where their only weapon is prayer, oh, you've got to take heart. You've got to know that that's God's home turf. God owns that field of desperation. He loves that moment of the impossible. Right? He delights in nothing else than to show himself strong in our own weakness. Because in our desperation, we always have just really one of two choices. Ourselves or omnipotence. Those are the two choices we have in desperation. And if you think about it, friends, there shouldn't be a choice. There simply shouldn't be a choice. And Israel chooses wisely. They go to their Lord. Because if they've learned anything, right, they've seen the serious set of guns that God has back there in chapters 5 and 6. And they know that when he flexes his muscle, right, the people cower, they run for the hills. This is what prayer does. It brings It brings God, it calls him to act according to his word on behalf of his people. And prayer in that moment of incredible hardship and difficulty, it may feel like the most irrational thing to do to an enlightened world, to pray to God. But in such circumstances, the Christian recognizes, knowing who this God is, that it is the most rational thing we can do. Of course we pray to him. Israel's had a change of heart. There's no more that brash, foolish confidence they had back earlier in outward symbols. And so what results? We pick up in verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. God saves his people. That's the result. Don't miss also when God chooses to save his people. It's right there in verse 10. While Samuel was there offering up that sacrifice, right? Hophni and Phinehas, remember they'd made a mockery of those sacrifices, but now we have a real priest making genuine intercession for a repentant people, and we have come a long way from chapter four. And so while this church, so to speak, sort of think of them kind of like they're at church, they're at the temple, they're at church, praying for a miracle, And God just steps into the cage while they're there praying, and he just drills the Philistines to the mat. He thunders there in verse 10. And through that supernatural event of a storm, the Philistine army is broken. And if that thundering sounds familiar, it's exactly what Hannah foretold in that prayer back in 1 Samuel 2.10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. 
So he thunders, he throws them into confusion, and that confusion is the same word that's used to describe the confusion that God creates amongst the Egyptians as they try to pass through the Red Sea, and then he defeats them. And just note, what's Israel's role in this victory? What's Israel's role in this victory? Well, they haven't played one. Just like back in chapters 5 and 6, they have played no role in this victory. This is not Israel's equivalent of Omaha Beach on D-Day. This isn't the same thing. There are no medals of valor to be conferred in battle because there's not a battle for Israel to fight. God defeats them, the text says. This is more like the kind of the liberation of Paris in World War II. You know, by the time the Allied soldiers arrived in Paris, the Germans had either surrendered or they had fled. Right? Israel here, all they have is the mop-up job. Right? Send in the scrubs to finish up the fight, secure the area, because the battle is already over. God has delivered his people. God saves. But he doesn't just save Israel, right? We can be saved. Saved from what, you ask? Well, not primarily from racial injustice, though that is a good thing that we need to be delivered from. Not economic deprivation, not corrupt politics, not broken families, all good things. But the primary thing the Bible says that we need to be saved from is not that. It's not even ourselves. We need to be saved from God. We need to be saved from God. Because, you see, most every major world religion teaches that, that inside we're inherently good. Right, strip away all the impediments of society, cast aside our occasional vices and weaknesses, peel back that thorny exterior, and what you have underneath is virtuous and shiny and pure. You know, my wife uh, and kids and I, we went up to Arvest Ballpark for some of the, so the classic bike and, and car show. They're part of Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue, and we were up there, and when you look at some of the old bikes, you have these old Ducatis and Indians and Harleys that go back to the 30s, and what they'll often have is they'll have a picture of, of what that bike looked like when it was found in some barn, kind of rusted out, and then what it looks like after it's been restored. And of course, we tend to think of ourselves a bit like those bikes. We're like, you know what, inside, underneath, I'm really a classic. I just need a little restoration. Maybe a little sanding to get off the rough edges, a little polish, some wax, and I'll sparkle and be shiny and new. I'll be a genuine classic. The Bible says, no, that's not it at all. You're a heap of metal. You are broken and bent. That is who we are, sadly, in our sin. Now, we're not as bad as we could be. There's still a modicum of goodness about us because we're made in God's image. So we aren't as sinful as we otherwise might be. But the image has been marred. You know, if you know that figure Gollum in Tolkien's novels, we're very much like that. Sin's power has turned us inward. We prefer darkness over light. We harbor our secrets. We coddle our sins. And thus we stand condemned before God because God judges sin. Any good God, like any good and just government, must judge sin if it's to be good. God would be cruel and unloving if he didn't judge sin which means he will judge us, every single one of us, all judged. Spiritually speaking, in our fallen condition, all of us will meet the fate of these Philistines, every one of us. 
But the gospel of Samuel doesn't stop there, right? It brings good news. God delivers. He, he saves. The sin that condemns you, God has conquered that sin. How has he done that? He's done it through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what this Philistine victory points us to because we don't live under a theocracy, just to be clear. The U.S. isn't the New Testament version of Israel. Right? The people of God under the Old Testament, Israel, well, the people of God in the New Testament is the church, and the church knows no borders. It has no boundaries. It doesn't wage physical battles. Her battles are spiritual battles. And the victory in 1 Samuel 7, it points us to that, that day in Christ where God fights again for his people, when Jesus dies on the cross in the place of sinners and then rises three days later from the grave, defeating sin and death. We share in that victory We participate in that victory when we turn from our sins. We put them away as Israel's done. We cry out to the Lord and we trust in him and in him alone to deliver. We don't partner with him in it. We look to him and know he has done it for us in Jesus Christ. We can be saved, right? Not by our might, not by our works. Christ works for us. He has done it. It is finished. Will you be saved then? Will you be saved? It's as simple as turning from sin and trusting in Christ. So what would keep you? But the gospel according to Samuel doesn't stop there. Point three, God will restore. God will restore. We pick up the story in verse 12. Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also, between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on his circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. The Philistines are subdued. The land is restored. We read there's even peace with the Amorites. And notice that final verse. What does it say? That he built there an altar to the Lord. So what was destroyed at Shiloh is being rebuilt there at Ramah. The worship of God people, it's continuing again, but this time with a faithful priest overseeing God's house. And so at the end of chapter 7, we're left with this beautiful, idyllic picture of a peaceful, prospering Israel Right, The kids are outside and playing. The church services at Ramah, they're vibrant and they're full. God's people living in his promised place under the good and wise rule of him and his servant Samuel. You might say that in the gospel according to Samuel that if if verse 10 was sort of their justification moment, right, God delivering his people, saving them from sin, this is sort of their sanctification moment, verses 12 through 17. But don't miss verse 12. Don't miss verse 12. Samuel sets up that stone, that that Ebenezer. It's to memorialize Israel's 
history so that when, you know, that swagger wagon drives by and, you know, the kids are in the back of the minivan, they're like, hey, Dad, what's up with the funny stone? He can tell them of God's faithfulness, of how he's delivered his people. It's a reminder, first, this stone, this Ebenezer stone, it's a reminder of their faithlessness that got them into the bind in the beginning. For remember, Ebenezer, do you remember what that was? It was the town that Israel camped at the night before they got whooped by the Philistines back in 4-1. Israel had chased after other gods. She had abandoned him. And on that fateful day, God wasn't their help. He wasn't their help. But the second thing, the stone, it's actually a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. We hear Ebenezer, maybe you think Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Ebenezer literally means the helper is a stone. That's what that term means. The helper is a stone. And we actually sang of this earlier in the service. I don't know if you caught it. When we sang that hymn, that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? The, the lyrics to that verse come right from this passage. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Ever wonder what in the world we're singing? It's the strangest thing. Here I raise my, raise my what? Raise my Ebenezer? Raise my Ebenezer, the stone of help, a reminder of God's deliverance and faithfulness. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. You see that that memorial stone wasn't like sort of our war memorials. Take the Vietnam, for example, where you have names etched and, and written into stone that commemorate the valor and the sacrifice of those soldiers. You know, this stone wasn't to commemorate the dead, though. This stone was to commemorate the living and the true God who is Israel's ever-present help. That's what the stone is to commemorate. The God is living and true and there to deliver his people. But you have that ominous till now in verse 12. Till now the Lord has helped us. I don't know if you caught that. Is that his ominous ring? Till now God has been our help, but what of the future? What of the future? We've noted in the past how forgetfulness may be one of the single greatest enemies of faith. Forgetfulness. And while we can't live in the past, we can look back to the past and so be strengthened as we move forward into the present. It's the same for for you and me. I wonder, what are your Ebenezer stones? What are your reminders, very concrete, practical reminders of the Lord's faithfulness to you? God has given you some. You have his word. Every time you open his word, it's a reminder of how time and time again God has met his people in need. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And at that table, we're reminded of that greatest act of deliverance where God has saved us from our sins. We have this church body and church family. God intends us as we live together as a church body to be caring for one another. This body should be that Ebenezer Stone, we should be to one another. As we come back on Sunday night, we pray together. We show ourselves faithful to one another, a reminder how God has been faithful to us. I hope you have your own Ebenezer Stones, that you memorialize them in some way. You know, maybe consider doing that by journaling. Just journaling, okay, what has God done? It's so easy to forget how God has been faithful. Journal, write some of those things down. But if you're like me, I loathe journaling. I'm terrible at it. For whatever reason, I don't like doing it. What do I do instead? I put these recurring reminders into my calendar, right? So when God has done something remarkable, 
Maybe it's because I'm lazy. I just write it into my calendar so it's a recurring event and I'm reminded of what God has done faithfully. So maybe consider doing that. So I was just looking just earlier this week. I was reminded I preached my very first sermon 14 years ago this month. It was really rough. It's a sign of God's care and deliverance that I'm still here preaching. You know, one thing my wife does is she keeps a book in our buffet, and at every birthday, she pulls it out, we go around, and we share stories of God's kindness and how he's worked in our lives in that past year. We need our Ebenezer stones, lest we forget God's kindness when that kiln of affliction burns hot about us. And I just got to stop. Is there, is there a demon in the lights back there? I don't know, if anyone has any expertise with lights, they keep flickering, I'll just mention that. If you're up front, you don't notice it, you're up top, don't worry about it. If anyone else knows how to deal with it, I'd encourage you to think about trying. Okay. All right. Christian, God's gonna restore his people. He restores his people. I just wonder, do you actually believe it? Because if you believe that God restores his people as he does for the Israelites here, It should make all the difference in the world. Because we all have those hopes, we all have those dreams, these things we want in order to make us happy. It might be a marriage, it might be a healthier marriage, it might be a job or a career or a school, whatever it might be. But if we're not careful, such hopes, hopes that will inevitably be unmet in some way, will breed bitterness and despair. But brothers and sisters, you've got to know God restores the fortunes of his people. Mark 10, 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. About one year before we moved here, uh, we went with the kids to Disney World It was a first trip, likely the last trip. But that's dad talking, that's not the kids. Kids loved it, and there was one attraction that my son had to hit. And if you've been there, you may have guessed it. You know, that's right, the Jedi Training Academy, right? Where you get to go mano a mano with Darth Vader, right? Lightsaber, wars and battles and so forth. And so you gotta get in line early. We were there, 6.45 in the morning, so I'm not gonna be the dad who didn't get a son a ticket. So they're waiting in line for a good while. We got the tickets. He's there, he's suited up. Lightsaber is ready. This is what he's longed for. It's been what he's waiting for. Going head to head with Darth Vader. So in that moment, when he's staring Darth Vader, his lightsaber is lit. Do you think he gives a rip about the guy hawking a buck 25 Mickey Mouse pins? Of course he doesn't. He's been waiting for the Jedi Training Academy. This is his moment with Darth Vader. He doesn't care about some buck 25 Mickey Mouse pin over there. He doesn't care at all about it. Oh, friend, I want you to see that's a little bit of how it should be with us. Right? We're on our way to the new heaven and the new earth where God restores the fortunes of his people. Everything we've longed for, everything in this life we've longed for, everything that we thought in this life we had to have to make us happy are like those Mickey Mouse pins. They're meaningless given where we're going. Right? We're headed to the banquet table of our king. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope. That's where we're headed. That's the restoration God is bringing about. And to know that this is our future. 
gives us joy and meaning in this world that nothing can take from us. This life, we stand in line ready to dine with our king. Those Mickey Mouse pins of this world, they just won't matter at all. So how do we get back to God? That's the question we opened with. 1 Samuel 7 has given us a wonderful picture, a parable really, a story lived out in our very eyes for a people pondering that same question. All right, we saw it first, it began with repentance. Before we can find God, we understand that we've been separated from him. We've got to come face to face with the fact that we're sinners, right? To return to God is to first turn from sin. Then it looks to his salvation. We can be saved. As surely as God fought for Israel, so he will fight for us. Not by conquering nation states, but by conquering our greatest foe, sin and death. Lastly, we wait for that final deliverance. God will restore his people as he restored Israel, so he will restore us. Right, the gospel according to Samuel. But of course, not just Samuel. For Samuel points us to another day when God's gonna raise up, like Samuel, another prophet for his people, and whose opening words, just like Samuel's words, were a call to repentance. It's this prophet who would be their priest, like Samuel, interceding before God on behalf of the people. It's this priest who would not just make the offering, but he would be that atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And there on the cross, he would be the one who cries out to God. And there at his death, darkness would again, again reign. And the Lord on that day would again thunder. And his enemies would be brought to their knees in confusion. Friends, it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God has fully and finally saved his people. The Philistine victory here points to that final and decisive day when Jesus defeated our enemies on the cross. The gospel according to Samuel is the gospel according to Jesus. They're one and the same gospel. Will it be yours? Will it be yours? If you ever hope to find God, this gospel is the only way. Let's pray. And God, we pray, and we pray that we would take to heart our lives and who we are, that we would do serious work as we reflect upon our sin, our delight in sin, our need to be saved, your graciousness to us in Christ. We pray that we would not leave these doors without taking that into serious consideration and drawing others into our lives that we would walk and abide in sin no more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.